Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of January 27th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We finally made it to chapter 7 after several weeks of chapter 6. Imagine that. Mark chapter 7, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. As a reminder of what's going on, over the last couple of weeks we have seen Jesus feed the 5,000. Last week we saw Him walk on water. We have seen Him over the last few weeks do a great many things. And even the last part of chapter 6, after He's fed the 5,000, after, he after He's walked on the water, He is just literally going around the whole northern area of Galilee, and people are just thronging to Him. He can't move anywhere. There are crowds everywhere. And everywhere He goes, people are just looking to touch Him, and He is healing and he is teaching, and the word has gotten out, and he has been going about this at this point, of course, for some time. Now, if we look, if we were to look back over the last six chapters that we've already looked at, we have seen as Jesus' ministry has progressed that he has been challenged a couple times. We saw some of the local religious leaders there in Jerusalem or in, in Galilee and the northern part of Israel come to him, and they accused him of things like being in league with Satan. His own family even came to him and thought he might be going a little bit uh, too far. And he's been challenged a couple times of what he's been teaching. And so he's gathered gathered a lot of tension. And so as we start chapter 7 of Mark this morning, what we're going to find is that not only is he being challenged by the local folks, not only is he being followed by the local folks, we're going to see some folks from the capital come up. He has gotten the attention of the bigwigs down in Jerusalem. Now, over the last couple of weeks, as we looked at these miracles, whether it be the, uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water in particular, we realized that as he's doing these things, as he's calmed the storms, as he's cast out demons, as he has provided bread for people in the wilderness, and even as he is, while walking on the water, and the disciples are kind of freaked out. You may remember this last week. The disciples think they see a ghost and they're scared to death. And he literally, in Greek, says the words, Do not be afraid, I am. Now, we may recognize those two words and understand that that is the name that God gave himself when speaking to Moses in the book of Exodus. Make no mistake about it. As Jesus has fed bread to thousands in the wilderness, and as he's walked on water, and as he's used the words, I am, Jesus is claiming Not just to be one who is sent by God, he is claiming to be God himself. And he's doing it in a way that you would hope would be very clear to all those around him. In fact, it was clear. If we read the Gospel of John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, we would find that the people were so entranced and so taken by what Jesus said, and they began to pick up on what he was doing and what he was saying, that even the people of the Galilee had decided to make him their king. It says they intended, after he had fed the 5,000, to take him and to force him to be their ruler and to lead a revolt over Rome. That's why Jesus, in part, got out of of town, so to speak, got up in the mountains to pray. So the people are recognizing him for who he is, at least to some degree, as Jesus has, has identified himself with the I Am of Exodus. And not only has he done that, we saw even the terminology as Jesus was walking by the disciples as they were on the Sea of Galilee. That he was passing by them in a way that he was trying to be noticed. It has, 
It evokes for us the same picture of God uh, when Moses in the book of Exodus says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will walk past you and you will see my backside. It's the same phrasing. And so Jesus is going out of his way to tell his disciples both in deed and in action and in word that he is the I am of Exodus, that he is God made flesh. That's who we are worshiping this morning, by the way. Not just an idea, not just a prophet, not just one who did some really cool things and said some great things. We are here this morning to worship and be disciples of the God who created us and made us. So this is what's going on as we get to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Pharisees and others coming from Jerusalem are going to begin to challenge him. And Mark is, I, I, say, I say Mark is kind of the action novel. It's the action movie of the four Gospels. There's tension and there's conflict. And in chapter 7, it all gets ratcheted up a notch as those who are challenging Jesus and coming after him now have more power. Mark chapter 7, let's begin reading in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that you would have or that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles the man. For from within and out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. 
Heavenly Father, we ask as we take these next few moments to look at your word, that you would teach us and mold us and shape us and give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were, in fact, highly concerned with purity and holiness. And while we often give the Pharisees and the scribes and these guys kind of a hard time, and sometimes we do so rightly, we do need to understand this morning that they had a sincere desire, I believe, to at least be holy or to be pure as they understood it. At least they had the concern with the appearance of these things. And that's, you know, the, the desire to be holy in and of itself is a good thing. And it may well be that they had convinced themselves, because by the way, we are very, very good at lying to ourselves and convincing ourselves of things that aren't necessarily true, aren't we? We talked about some of this a little bit on Wednesday night. You, 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 we can convince ourselves of all kinds of things that aren't true about ourselves. There may be that they had convinced themselves that they were, in fact, holy if they kept up all these rules. Now, we're not going to get into all the details of all these things they're talking about because it's really not all that relevant to us, but just to suffice it to say what they were doing was this. They had, when it came to eating in particular, all kinds of things that separated themselves from the people around them, and they saw these separations as things that made them different, unique, holy, or pure. Now, there wasn't just the washing of hands. By the way, there was a the way you had to wash your hands. Now, by the way, in flu season in particular, it's okay to wash your hands, okay? If I give you a fist bump, it just means I don't want to catch the flu, okay? No, no, no problem. But washing your hands is a, is a fine thing. It's, 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 this is not about hygiene. What Israel had gotten themselves to doing was they were going through a ritual washing of hands before they ate. And the idea was this that the world was contaminated, the world would be impure. And there was a thousand one reasons of things that could do that, whether you went to the marketplace or whatever it was. So in order to be pure before God, and they had a desire to some degree to make every part of their life holy, which, is, by the way, is, again, a good thing to do. And so they didn't want any part of their life to be sullied. They wanted their lives to be pure and separate, holy, consecrated to God. They would do things that gave them what they would call ceremonial or ritual purity, something that made them pure in the eyes of God as they practiced their religion. And some of these things were things that God had told them to do way back when. But what had happened was, for, for hundreds of years, recognized that you know, right now, this time in history, the Jews are under Roman occupation. And they'd been under the Greeks, they'd been under the Babylonians, they'd been under the Persians. They had spent centuries under other nations under the boot heel, if you will. And so they had developed ways to, in the midst of all that, find a way to separate themselves and still hang on to what they thought God wanted them to do. Again, this is not a bad motive. And they had all these rules. They wanted to be ritually pure. Now, God had told them to do that. So in the desire to be ritually pure, they had done what they called in their day and age, building a fence around the law. So if the law said, be pure before the Lord, well, you and I might ask, and they asked, well, how do I do that? How do I do that when it comes to, say, shopping? Or how do I do that when it comes to, say, eating? So they had asked these questions. And in response to these questions, they began to, to just write a bunch of rules. And they had rules for everything. And these rules were supposed to help you be holy. Now, what had happened is this. 
all these rules they had written weren't necessarily things that God had given them. They were they had they had become traditions of the elders, traditions of the scribes, and there were things that they did to do this, to do this, which which made them holy. Now the problem got to be that they began to equate being holy and pure before God, not by keeping God's word, but by keeping all the rules they had built around God's word. And as they had begun to more highly value the traditions of human beings over the original word of God. In fact, Jesus even gives them an example. Now, this might kind of be a little confusing to us. He talks about something called Corbin here in verses 11, 12, and 13. And what this basically was, Corbin was a, an oath you took. It was a way of saying, I'm making a gift to God. I'm gonna, it could be money, it could be possessions, it could be anything like that. You say, I pronounce this Corbin. And that means that that thing now belongs to God. Now, there was a particular application for this thing that was going on. Uh, Jesus cites here the commandment, honor your father and mother. How many of y'all like that commandment? Parents, you like that commandment? Yeah, okay. Grandparents, you like that commandment? Kids, probably not your favorite one. Especially, by the way, have you ever looked at the penalties for breaking that commandment? He who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. <laughs> I'm wondering how many of us this morning would be alive <laughs> and not just a section over here because the truth is we've all been <laughs> well part of what that meant was that of course there was an expectation you know, there's no social security in ancient Israel by the way no retirement plans no, no IRA accounts and so part of what was expected was Children are going to take care of their parents at some point. Well, what was happening is that, uh, let's say so-and-so is doing pretty well for themselves, and they kind of want to keep their money to themselves. So what they would do is they would essentially take their bank account and say, this bank account is Corbin. It's dedicated to God. Now, here were the rules they had built for that. It's, it's a gift for God, but I don't have to actually give it to him until I'm done with it. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? But what it means is, well, mom, dad, I really can't take care of you with this bank account because this bank account is for God. And so what Jesus is saying is this. You guys have come up with this set of tra traditions and rules so that you don't actually have to do what you're supposed to do. You, you can take credit for, oh, look, I gave something to God. I got to keep my word. I got to keep my oath to that. So that you see yourself as holy because you've given something to God, when in actuality what you're doing is you're using this little tradition to prevent yourself from honoring your parents. And that's when he says to them, you hypocrites. By the way, this is the first time on Mark he says that. He, he just says, you hypocrites. You're using your traditions, you're using your rules, not just to separate yourselves from the world, but you're using it to actually break the word of God. That was what was going on. And as a result, the people of Israel, and, the, and we could pick on perhaps the Pharisees as scribes today, but by the way, you and I are much more like them than we give ourselves credit for. What that was happening is they had taken these traditions and taken these external traditions, whether it be how to wash your hands or Corbin, they had taken these things and said, look at how holy and how pure 
We are because we keep these rules. And Jesus is saying, you seem to be under the impression that being pure before God has anything to do with washing your hands. He says it doesn't. It's got nothing to do with your external traditions, the teachings of men. Now, before we get too hard on the Pharisees and scribes this morning, how often do we do the exact same thing? Now, I'm going to put myself in this category this morning because I'm right there with you. I bet you that every single one of us has some particular sin that we think is really, really bad. And it will happen to be a sin that we don't commit. And then we look at somebody else and go, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. We even have traditions. Now, we're here at a Southern Baptist church, and believe it or not, we do have traditions of Southern Baptist church. We got Sunday morning services. We got Sunday school. We got Sunday night services. We got Wednesday night stuff. We got things like bulletins. We have things like chicken fried, uh, fried chicken for, for fellowship. We got all kinds of traditions, don't we, in the Southern Baptist church? And guess what? If we're not careful, because it's an easier trap to fall into than we think it is, we can, if someone doesn't keep the traditions in quite the same way we think they ought to, what do we think in our mind? Oh, they're not, uh, they're not where I'm at. I was at Wednesday night more often than they are. I'm holier. Now, we might not say that out loud, <laughs> but it might be true in our hearts. By the way, external stuff, I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but we have to be careful that we don't take human traditions or human ways of expressing our faith and translate them and treat them as if those things are God's word themselves. That's what they had done there. They had really more, even so this, this particular example, Jesus tells us that the real issue is they were taking traditions. They were taking human ideas and turning them into things that were more important than God's word and they were judging someone's purity or holiness or rightness with God, not based upon his word, but based upon their traditions, based upon these external things, whatever they may be. So the initial charge brought by the Pharisees here are these first 13 verses, and we have two sections here, by the way, the first 13 verses and then 14 to 23. These first 13 verses are talking about this this charge that the Pharisees made to Jesus and said, you guys aren't keeping the traditions right. Now, why are they making that accusation? Because they want to discredit Jesus. They want to discredit his disciples. They want the world to look at him and say, ignore the miracles, ignore the raising of the dead, ignore the feeding of the 5,000, ignore the truth of what he says, ignore all that. He doesn't wash his hands right. Now, that seems a little silly, doesn't it? <laughs> but we're a lot closer to that than we think we are sometimes. So they make these charges, and, and, and Christ just answers back and says, listen, you hypocrites. How dare you use your traditions to discredit the Word of God? See, this type of thing, this type of rules can very, these type of traditions can can give us a sense of pride that somehow we are better or holier than others if they don't do quite the thing we do. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples here. I'm just going to pick up something simple. 
Um, people that, I'm going to pick on some things that people have debated about for years and years and years. And some of these are kind of older, but um, yeah, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm, a preacher, I'm a Baptist preacher's kid, and my family grew up playing cards. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to some of you, but growing up, that was kind of a big deal because Southern Baptists were known, among other things, to be against card playing and dancing. I have played cards, and I have danced badly. In fact, I'm not sure you would actually call it dancing, so maybe that's my loophole. I did do the thing in high school prom where you kind of do like, you, you know, you, you kind of hold the word, you just kind of do like this. That, that's all I got right there. I, I grew up with those traditions. Or, well, I mean, I grew up around people who had those traditions. I remember I, I didn't think they were that big a deal anymore. And it's, it's, it's been about 30 years now. I was having a conversation with uh, some folks that were in, in my dad's church at one point. And she was, our, she was the church pianist. And it bothered her to no end that dad, at least dad's family, played cards. She thought that was a, that was a sign of, I don't know, some satanic, I don't know. Now, I know that it goes back to an association with gambling and what I, I get the, the reasons for it. That's a human tradition. Now, that was a nice, safe one. I probably didn't step on anybody's toes with that one this morning. But whether it be what movies you see or what TV shows you watch or what music you listen to, whether it be, and we can fill in the blank with any number of things, we have stuff that we look at and go, well, I don't do those things. They do. I'm, I'm, I'm more pure. We have to be careful that we're sticking to God's word and not some interpretation or not some tradition of men as a result of that. That's what was going on. A life of worship and service to God. And here's what they're doing. They're living this life of service to God, ironically, more worried about the opinion of others than God. So the idea is that they're supposed to be right with God, but the way they're trying to be right with God is to try to appear a certain way before other people. We cannot worship God correctly. We cannot serve God correctly if it's really more important for us to be seen a certain way by the people around us. Maybe it's raising your hands in, 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 in worship while there's a song being sung. What will people think if I raise my hand in worship? I don't know, and guess what? I don't care. Because the Bible talks over and over and over again about raising your hands in worship. So why wouldn't God's people occasionally raise their hands in worship? We worship and walk with God not based upon the opinions of others. There has been a, a preacher named Andy Stanley who's made some waves over the last six months. And, and Andy has done a lot of great things. He pastors a large church there on the north side of Atlanta, Georgia. And he's done a lot of great things. But about uh, six months ago, he came out with this idea that we as a Christians here in the 21st century should, in his words, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And the idea is, well, it's hard, and there's some things that are difficult to understand, and not everyone likes it, so we should just really kind of stop talking about the Old Testament. You know what that is? That is trying to serve God through the opinions of other people, as opposed to through God himself. That's not what God said. That's what the Pharisees were doing. So Jesus is saying to them, stop living your life by the opinions of others and stop trying to be impressive to the people next to you and simply have a right heart before God. These traditions, he says, ignore them. They're not that important of a deal. 
But he does go further here. In fact, Jesus does something rather remarkable. In verse 14, he says something that's a little more startling to us if we were aware, if we were aware of the history of it. He says in verse 14, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Now, the traditions of chapter 7, the first 13 verses that he was talking about, all the washings and all that type of stuff to Corbin, those were human traditions. But Jesus does something a step further here. He actually begins to deal with the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And guess what? These are actually there. God himself was the one that told the people of Israel, don't eat pork or don't do this. Or God gave them some very specific dietary restrictions. And that's now what Jesus is turning his attention to. He says to people, it's not what you eat that makes you defiled or impure. Now, you'll recognize that there's not a really reaction given to this. He just says this, and then he goes into the house, and it's just him and his disciples, and they're going, what? Now, recognize, we talked about this when we started the Gospel of Mark uh, many, many Sundays ago, or many months ago. Peter, the apostle Peter, is probably one of the primary sources for the Gospel of Mark. We recognize that Peter and Mark had a relationship and that Peter is probably a lot of the first-hand information source for this. And Peter, you remember, even in the book of Acts, after Jesus has left and ascended and Peter is proclaiming the Gospel, that Peter was having issues with this idea of eating anything you wanted to eat. And so what happens here is Jesus says, he, he actually begins to deal with the Old Testament actual God's Word about what to eat and what not to eat by saying it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't have anything to do with your purity or your defileness or defiledness before God. Now, what's happening here? Well, we don't have time to get into all the details here, but suffice it to say this. So much of what we see in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, these, these holiness laws, were about trying to educate the people of Israel about a couple different things. And one of them was the nature of sin and the nature of holiness. And that they were to be a people who were, in fact, called out to be a unique people. And so God gave them many things that would separate themselves or to separate Israel from the rest of the world so that they would say that we are a peculiar possession of God. And one of those was some of these dietary laws. So we're not talking about ritual hand-washing here. We're talking about what you actually eat. Now, if there is one being out there who can say, all right, I gave you these rules to help you understand the nature of sin and holiness, and now that that has been dealt with, I'm giving you this. Who is the only one with the authority to do that? God himself. So we need to understand something. It was very important for Jesus to use the phrase I am in Mark chapter 6 because unless he's I am, he can't do what he's getting ready to do in Mark chapter 7. Only God gets to do this. Now, that, that's a whole, we don't have time to get into the details of all this because it's a whole other series of messages. But understand this, what, God is, what Jesus is doing here is only something that God can do. And that is to say this, these laws were given for this reason, that reason has now passed, and now we're dealing with it this way. And so now understand that nothing is unclean. Mark even gives us a little paragraph or a little parenthesis that says what he was saying was 
all foods are declared clean. You see that there in verse 19. So that's something, again, only God can do. And what Jesus is talking about here in this passage between 14 and 23 is he said this. He said, I just told you that the traditions of men cannot be used to make one holy. He said, but now I'm telling you something else. The nature of sin, the nature of what makes us unclean before God is not what you put into your body, it's what's already on the inside. It's what your heart is. And here's the thrust of what we're trying to do with this morning. True defilement, true impurity, true problems we have between us and God aren't from out here, they are within here. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I find the principle that evil is present within me. Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanities in their hearts throughout their lives. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Proverbs 23, 7, as, a, as he thinks within himself, so is he, speaking of mankind. Here's the bottom line. I don't sin because of what someone else made me do. I sin because my heart is corrupt and evil. I can never say the phrase, well, he made me do it. I can never say the phrase, well, if it wasn't for them, or if it wasn't for that TV show, or if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have sinned. Because here's the bottom line, I don't need anybody's help to sin. I'm quite capable of doing it all by myself. My heart is corrupted and evil. Now, people through the years have tried to figure out, kind of like the people, the Jewish leaders did, how can I make myself holy? How can I present myself to God pure? How can I keep myself before Him in all areas of my life right? How can I, how can I do that? Now, one, there's been a couple different approaches throughout history. Some have taken what we sometimes call a monastic approach. And here's, here's what that means. It means I separate myself from the world. It means I huddle myself into a little room. Don't let the outside world in. Don't, don't listen to music. Don't listen, you know, you know, I'm sure, okay, in 1000 AD, they didn't have music or they didn't have, you know, MP3 players or movies. But the idea was this, put myself in a place where there's nobody else out there, where I'm not going to be influenced by the world, shut myself off from all that bad stuff out there. And if I shut myself off from all the bad stuff, what's going to happen? I'll be pure. I'll be holy, right? If I don't listen to bad music, if I don't listen to bad movies, I don't watch bad movies, if I don't hang around with the wrong people, I'll be pure. No. It doesn't work that way. Because James reminds us, you know, it's not those bad people out there. It's not those bad movies out there. It's not that bad music out there. It's not whatever you want. It's not those, it's not the outside world that makes you evil. You can do that all by yourself. You don't need anybody's help to be evil. Now, now before you run off with this here, <laughs> Let me, let me put a little caveat here in. The stuff I listen to, the stuff I surround myself with, doesn't make me sin, doesn't make me impure. But it is a reflection of what I value. 
I don't eat chocolate because I'm learning how to eat chocolate. I don't eat chocolate because I'm hoping one day to like it. I eat chocolate because I already like it. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't refrain from cauliflower because I think it's bad for me. I don't eat cauliflower because, quite frankly, it makes me sick. I can't stand it. Sorry. I know some of y'all grow gardens. Please, next summer, if you give me cauliflower, I will pass it on to somebody else who likes it. <laughs> I, I, I react certainly towards chocolate cauliflower, not because of what they are, but because of who I am, uh, who I already am. Now, here's the deal. What I feed my life, what I put into it, what I watch, what I listen to, isn't what makes me sin or makes me not sin. It's a reflection of what I already like. So let me just get real specific here. If I delight in and am entertained by pornography, and by the way, the stats say that even in the church, upwards of 50 or 60% or more of individuals regularly look at pornography. If I am entertained by pornography, the pornography isn't making me sin. I'm watching it because I already have sinned in my heart. It's a reflection of what I already am. If I'm enjoying watching this or watching that because I, 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 am, I am entertained by the language or by the crudity of the jokes, those listening to crude jokes does not make me sin. It tells me I already am a sinner. If I am entertained by stuff that is that evil, it's not its fault I'm sinning. I'm already sinning. I'm telling you, I'm broadcasting what I like. Do you see the difference there? We must always deal with God himself and not with traditions or rules laid down that humans have made up. These Jewish leaders in chapter 7 of Mark would not have seen themselves as unholy. They would not have seen themselves as evil men, and that was the problem. They failed to recognize the point of the Old Testament law. And the point of the Old Testament law from Genesis to Malachi is that you and I are sinners and corrupted before a holy God and are helpless on our own to do anything about it. Jesus lists there in 21, 22 about 13 different things we all recognize as evil. It says these all come from the heart. This, this whole idea, this, this initial question that goes all the way back to chapter 5, or verse 5, I'm sorry, chapter 7. What is something that's right or pure before God? All these rules that they'd come up with implies that, that even the concern to make holy all of life has less to do with any individual rule it has more to do with, do we love God in our hearts? What is more crucial in attaining purity in life is the fact that, do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our strength, all our mind? We must always deal with God and not the traditions of men. To, not to, by the way, to properly understand the source of sin as my own heart and not the world out there. 
I need to recognize, or this, this will help me do it in a couple different ways. First of all, it will help me from blaming other people for my sins. It'll help me deal with anger. It'll help me deal with these things, this idea of, of stuff. It will help me not have, it will prevent me from having a shallow view of sin. That sin is not first and foremost about any rule I've broken or anything I've done. The sin is a deeper issue than stealing someone's bicycle as your kid or coarse language or any number of behaviors that we can name. Sin is more than that. It's about a heart that looks at God and says no. That's the heart of sin. The heart of sin is I look at God and say, I don't want you to be my king. I don't want to love you. That's the heart of sin. It also points me to something else. Jesus is taking us to this. If sin has not, if sin has less to do with any certain individual behavior, it has more to do with a heart that's broken, then the solution to sin is not behavior modification. The solution to sin is not a new set of rules that makes me look better on the outside. The solution to sin is not keeping a different set of rules that makes me look pure. The solution to sin is a new heart. A heart that loves God. A heart that craves the things of God because I love Him. And why are we here this morning? Because we have recognized that we need not new rules, but a new heart. It's a heart thing. And we, as we sit here this morning, perhaps most of us in this room have already given our lives to Christ. Perhaps most of us in this room would say, I have trusted God, I have given my life to Him, and He has given me a new heart. But sometimes if we're not careful, that new heart can still find itself trapped by things like rules and regulations and false ideas of purity and going back to the slavery of legalism. If you remember the story of Exodus, so many times after the people of Israel were, after they were let go, after they were redeemed and set free from slavery, after they were no longer having to worry about the whip of the Egyptian slave drivers, so many times as they were leaving that, they would look back and tell Moses, why did you bring us out here? It would be better for us if we were back in Egypt. And time and time and time again, the people of Israel said, it would be better for us to be slaves. And the truth is, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, so many times even we as Christians think that even though God has given us a new heart and set us free from sin and given us a heart to love Him, we think it's easier back there in slavery. We think it's easier when all we have to do worry about is a few set of rules and not a new heart. What Christ came to do, what Christ is on His way to doing here in Mark chapter, in the Gospel of Mark, is not establishing a new set of rules to live by. He's about providing a new heart. A heart that loves God, that seeks after Him. It's a heart thing. It may be this morning that you realize that as you stand before God, you need not a new set of rules, or not to be a better rule keeper. But you need a heart that seeks after God. A heart that loves Him. Maybe you are a believer in Christ and you realize you found yourself going back to Egypt a little bit here and you need to come back to that point in time where you're not focused upon so much the rules. And by the way, I'm not saying that rules are bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what we need before God is a new heart.
first. And you realize you've been more worried about rules and appearing a certain way than you are about whether or not you actually have a heart right before God. So maybe as a believer this morning, you simply need to get your heart right before God. And maybe if you've never given Him your heart, you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never come to the cross and seen what He did when He died on that cross and came back to life and says to you, if you will trust in me, I will give you a new heart and a new life. I will resurrect you. Maybe you're not even sure what that means. This morning's the time. I'll be happy to talk with you about what it means to have a new heart.